Welcome to the October 28, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss an analysis of genetic risks for CMV infection after an allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Learn more about a new multiplex gene editing approach to reactivate fetal hemoglobin in thalassemia and discuss transcriptional rewiring of normal plasma cell development in light-chain amyloidosis and myeloma. Our first topic examines data presented in the Blood article entitled Genetic Variants Associated with Cytomegalovirus Infection After Allogeneic Hematopoietic Cell Transplantation by Amanda Casto from the University of Washington School of Medicine and colleagues. Infections are a common cause of morbidity and mortality after hematopoietic stem cell transplant for the treatment of hematologic disorders and malignancies. In fact, infection with human cytomegalovirus is one of the most common infectious complications of this life-saving treatment. It is associated with poor clinical outcomes and higher rates of mortality. Therefore, screening for CMV infection and pharmacologic CMV prophylaxis have become part of standard care after hematopoietic stem cell transplant, or HSCT. Despite these interventions, CMV reactivation in allogeneic transplant recipients is common, with clinically significant CMV reactivation and CMV disease occurring in 50% and 8% of CMV seropositive recipients, respectively. Prior research has shown that the serostatus of the donor and recipient are the most important predictors of CMV disease after HSCT. Namely, seropositive recipients appear to be at the highest risk, seronegative recipients with seropositive donors at intermediate risk, and seronegative recipients with seronegative donors at the lowest risk of developing disease. Other factors that may influence this risk include the choice of chemotherapy used for conditioning before the transplant, the use of cord blood grafts, and the development of graft-versus-host disease. Studies focused on examining the association of genetic variants in the donor and the recipient with CMV reactivation and disease after HSCT have found certain variants, such as those in the chemokine receptor CCR5 or in interferon lambda, to convey higher risk. However, the genetic variants associated with higher risk have mostly been identified in single analyses. Therefore, the goal of the current study was to validate or disprove any associations reported to date. Investigators assessed a total of 117 candidate genetic variants, previously determined to be associated with a CMV-related trait, in a large cohort from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center of 2,169 CMV seropositive transplant patients and their donors. They also performed a genome-wide association study for CMV reactivation and disease in the same cohort. A pre-specified discovery and replication approach was used in both analyses to control for false positive results. Contrary to the previous reports, 
the authors found only the donor ABCB1, RS104-5642 genotype, to be a risk factor for CMV reactivation. ABCB1 encodes P-glycoprotein, which transports drugs from the intracellular compartment to outside of the cell. Furthermore, they found that this synonymous variant influences the risk of CMV activation by changing the efflux of calcineurin inhibitors cyclosporin and tacrolimus from donor lymphocytes. The resulting higher intracellular concentration of cyclosporin and tacrolimus is believed to adversely impact lymphocyte function and antiviral immunity. The results of the genome-wide association study also revealed that a variant in donor CDC42EP3, a gene encoding a protein that regulates the cytoskeleton, approached the significance threshold for association with CMV reactivation. However, a mechanism to explain this association could not be identified. In conclusion, the findings from this study did not confirm almost all of the previously reported associations between genomic variants and increased risk of CMV reactivation and disease after hematopoietic stem cell transplant. The authors note that they were not able to evaluate copy number variants that have been implicated as important determinants of CMV reactivation in some studies. Another caveat is that their analysis was restricted to European ancestry samples, the predominant ancestral group in their study. In an accompanying commentary, Hermann Einzel and Sabrina Krauss from University Hospital Würzburg in Germany emphasize that this latest study is a valuable contribution to the literature because it disproves most earlier reported associations between single nucleotide polymorphisms and CMV disease after hematopoietic cell transplant. Another valuable finding is that the G allele for RS104-5642 in the ABCB1 gene in donors reduces the risk of CMV reactivation by 20% which is similar in magnitude to the CMV serostatus used to select donors. Einzel and Krauss believe that future studies should investigate whether a reduction in the blood concentration of calcineurin inhibitors in patients receiving their transplant from donors homozygous for the RS104-5642AA variant will compensate for the lower P-glycoprotein activity and the resulting higher intracellular concentration of cyclosporin and tacrolimus. They also wonder if reducing the blood concentration of these immunosuppressant drugs in patients with this variant, with the goal of decreasing the risk of CMV activation and disease, can be done safely. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Enhanced Hemoglobin F Reactivation by Multiplex Mutagenesis of Thalassemic CD34-Positive Cells in Vitro and in Vivo by Nicoletta Psatha from the Altius Institute for Biomedical Sciences and colleagues in Thessaloniki, Greece, and the University of Washington in Seattle. Beta-thalassemia and sickle cell disease are the most prevalent forms of beta-hemoglobinopathies worldwide. Despite the recent therapeutic advances in the field, Treating inheritable hemoglobin disorders remains a challenge and significantly contributes to the global healthcare burden of blood disorders. Hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin is a benign condition that causes elevated production of fetal hemoglobin throughout adult life. 
due to a failure to switch from fetal to adult hemoglobin production. Prior research has shown that the severity of disease in patients with thalassemia or sickle cell disease can be reduced with coexisting expression of fetal hemoglobin, and that some patients may even achieve transfusion independence. Recent advances in genome editing have paved the way to new therapeutic opportunities in thalassemia and sickle cell disease via reactivation of the developmentally silenced fetal hemoglobin. Specifically, the fetal globin promoters HBG1 and 2 have emerged as novel therapeutic targets in both conditions, since they serve as binding sites for key transcriptional repressors of fetal hemoglobin expression, namely BCL11A and LRF. These repressors bind to two specific sequences, one at 200 base pairs and a second at 115 base pairs, upstream of the HBG promoter. Prior studies have shown that targeted disruption of these sites results in marked reactivation of fetal hemoglobin expression. To broaden the therapeutic window beyond the single-site editing approach, in this latest blood study, investigators performed simultaneous genome editing of not only the fetal globin HBG promoter, but also of the BCL11A gene enhancer to increase fetal hemoglobin reactivation. The goal of this approach was to explore the potential for a synergistic effect of multiplex mutagenesis, which could expand the clinical applicability of genome editing to difficult-to-treat patients with beta-hemoglobinopathies, such as those with severe beta-thalassemia. The effect of multiplex mutagenesis was studied in vitro in primary human CD34-positive hematopoietic stem cells, as well as in a murine model with engrafted human CD34-positive thalassemic cells. The authors first compared the efficacy of editing the HBG200 locus that binds the repressor BCL11A versus editing of the BCL11A enhancer, or the HBG115 locus, in achieving fetal hemoglobin activation. They used multiplex single-guide RNA targeting different combinations of the BCL11A enhancer, HBG200, or HBG115 loci in CD34-positive cells. This strategy could not only disrupt BCL11A expression, but also the promoter binding sites for the fetal hemoglobin repressors. To assess results, they used both in vitro assays and xenotransplantation studies conducted in an immunodeficient mouse model, where the bone marrow is assayed for overall engraftment, multilineage reconstitution, and fetal hemoglobin expression. The investigators found that multiplex mutagenesis in adult CD34-positive cells was well-tolerated and did not negatively affect the cells in vitro or in vivo proliferation and differentiation. They further demonstrated that combining BCL11A enhancer editing with targeting either of the HBG loci resulted in higher total gamma globin levels and an increased concentration of fetal hemoglobin cells. The editing retention was high in vivo and coupled with almost pancellular fetal hemoglobin expression in immunodeficient mice following xenotransplantation. In addition, the investigators tested an in vivo CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing strategy. They used a non-integrating adenoviral vector to deliver both Cas9 and the guide RNAs, building on prior work by this group. This vector has high affinity for the human CD46 receptor, which is expressed on hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells. An in vivo editing strategy has significant benefits, 
since it avoids the need for ex vivo manipulation of hematopoietic cells, which must then be transplanted back into the patient using conditioning chemotherapy. Here, using a novel adenoviral CRISPR vector, which could carry two single-guide RNA, the authors confirmed improved in vivo performance of this combination to reactivate fetal hemoglobin expression in CD34-positive cells from beta-thalassemia patients that had been transplanted into mice. After in vivo injection of the non-integrating adenoviral CRISPR vector, a marked increase in fetal hemoglobin expression was observed in human red blood cells in mice that had established predominant thalassemic hematopoiesis. Taken together, these data demonstrate that, compared to single-site mutations, the combination of double-gene editing to disrupt both BCL11A expression and its binding site within the fetal globin promoter significantly reactivated fetal hemoglobin synthesis. The multiplex mutagenesis was efficient, without evidence of toxicity, and could be adapted to in vivo gene editing in a mouse xenotransplant model of human thalassemia to increase fetal hemoglobin levels. In an accompanying commentary, Justin Loke from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, and the University of Birmingham in the UK, commends the authors for developing a potentially important strategy aimed at improving fetal hemoglobin production in patients with severe beta-globin disorders. He further notes that the authors successfully reactivated fetal hemoglobin production by mobilizing stem cells into the peripheral circulation, followed by in vivo transduction using an optimized non-integrating adenoviral vector. True editing of hematopoietic stem cells was demonstrated by engraftment of human CD45-positive thalassemic cells in secondary transplantation assays. However, Loke also emphasized that a number of obstacles remain before this work can be translated into the clinic where it can impact patients, including overcoming the immunogenicity associated with adenoviral vector technology. Lastly, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Tumor Cells in Light Chain Amyloidosis and Myeloma Show Different Transcriptional Rewiring of Normal Plasma Cell Development by Danielle Alameda from Clinica Universidad de Navarra in Pamplona, Spain, and his collaborators. In this interesting report, Alameda and colleagues sought to identify unique pathogenic mechanisms behind the differences in tumor plasma cell expansion in the bone marrow of patients with light-chain amyloidosis and multiple myeloma. These two disorders are the most common malignant monoclonal gammopathies. Both are characterized by the accumulation of malignant plasma cells in the bone marrow, but the behavior of these cells and resulting clinical consequences differ. In multiple myeloma, the accumulation of malignant plasma cells in the bone marrow leads to anemia and bone destruction while amyloidosis is characterized by deposition of misfolded light chains, also known as amyloid fibrils, in various organs. The neoplastic transformation of normal plasma cells is a complex process that involves their generation in secondary lymphoid organs, circulation in peripheral blood, and residence in bone marrow. Previous attempts aimed at understanding the mechanisms governing tumor plasma cell expansion in different gammopathies have largely been unsuccessful. Therefore, in the current study, investigators aim to define a transcriptional atlas of normal plasma cell development in secondary lymphoid organs, peripheral blood, and bone marrow, 
and compare it with the transcriptional programs of tumor plasma cells in monoclonal gammopathies. They performed bulk RNA sequencing of plasma cells from healthy individuals, as well as from 32 patients with amyloidosis, 32 patients with multiple myeloma, and 6 patients with monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. Single-cell RNA sequencing was performed in plasma cells collected from secondary lymphoid organs, peripheral blood, and bone marrow of healthy patients, as well as in bone marrow aspirates of 6 patients with amyloidosis, and 15 patients with multiple myeloma. In healthy individuals, investigators observed 13 transcriptional programs during the migration and transition of plasma cells through the secondary lymphoid organs, peripheral blood, and bone marrow. They also found that the ectoenzyme CD39 outperforms CD19 as a discriminatory biomarker of newborn bone marrow plasma cells and that tumor plasma cells express the most advantageous transcriptional programs of normal plasma cell differentiation. The study further revealed that tumor cells express transcriptional programs of both immature and mature stages of normal plasma cell development. Tumor plasma cells from patients with amyloidosis most closely resemble plasma cells from secondary lymphoid organs whereas multiple myeloma cells have more in common with peripheral blood plasma cells and newborn bone marrow plasma cells. In addition, the authors observed inferior survival in amyloidosis and multiple myeloma patients enriched in immature transcriptional programs, as well as upregulation of transcriptional programs related with protein and link glycosylation in amyloidosis. This is the first integrated bulk and single-cell analysis of the transcriptional programs of anatomically different normal plasma cell subsets compared to tumor plasma cells in these disorders. Collectively, these findings contribute to an improved understanding of normal plasma cell development and transcriptional reorganization that takes place in amyloidosis and other monoclonal gammopathies. In an accompanying commentary, Jill Corr from Institut Universitaire du Cancer de Toulouse en Copole in France notes that the transcriptional atlas published by Alameda and colleagues provides a wealth of information for researchers exploring the physiology of long-lived immunoglobulin-producing plasma cells. She believes that the next research step should be aimed at identifying the underlying mechanisms of this transcriptional diversity, which could be epigenetic. These insights could contribute to the selection of optimal therapeutic regimens in amyloidosis and multiple myeloma. Core further adds that this latest study shines a new light on the importance of the cell of origin in gammopathies, as evidenced from the finding that patients with amyloidosis and multiple myeloma, whose tumor cells were enriched with immature profiles, had inferior outcomes, independent of high-risk cytogenetics. It remains to be seen whether the predominant transcriptional programs of tumor cells identified in this study can translate into the clinic, she concludes. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.